You see that stupid number in your checking account? It's called wasted potential. Now I'm gonna let you in on a little secret about something called the portfolio. And it's not gonna build itself, okay? Without you, it's just another number on a screen. Like a jungle full of bananas and no ape in sight. Well, I'm gonna take you to that jungle. Because in the case of these portfolios, it is gonna be up to each and every one of you. My speculative degenerates, my apes, and of course my apets, who will not hit the cell until your account either flies or flops and dies! Hello everyone and welcome to Always Picking Electric Securities. It's your host Alex Marku and today is July 23rd, 2022. Now I'm going to be letting you know why I've been gone for so long and why I haven't put out any episodes. I'm also going to be giving you an update on what my plan is with this apes portfolio and what I plan on doing, but that's going to come more towards the end of this episode. Now since the first episode I put back in over 6 months basically isn't super short, I'm also going to give you an inside look on the personal investments I have and what my outlook will be for the rest of this year because as I lay out in this upcoming episode, you're going to see what my plans are exactly to keep my apes portfolio alive and running. One quick note, I haven't sold a thing. So with all that said, I hope you enjoy this upcoming episode. Financial disclaimer. Since this is an investing podcast, I will give out the disclaimer that everything I do on this podcast has the potential to reach 100% loss. All right, my apes and retail investors that think alike. I'm going to give you just the real cold hard truth of why I didn't publish an episode. And it's not because life was just getting too busy or I was getting too busy with things. And the real truth of the matter is that I just wasn't really prepared when I launched this podcast idea. And in short, I ran out of ideas. I felt like everything was going too fast and I had no more teaching moments. And I was really just going day by day with whatever the hell was happening in markets and I was trying to put together content. So in hindsight, I probably should have been a little bit more prepared before I launched this actual podcast idea and I kind of wanted a break away from it all so that's what I did. And now instead of making an apologetic episode like I did the last time I took a huge break, I decided to just sit back and think what do I want to really do? Do I really want a podcast? Or do I just like this idea of investing and showing people my trades, showing people how I invest, the small analysis or even detailed analysis I might overtake? And is it just satisfying if I maybe teach one person something I know? So to me, I kind of was evaluating from the last episode I had and I've been thinking, what should I do? So I'll let you know right now, my plan is to go forward with this whole education of investing and putting money into the markets, because if I can just teach one person or give one person a spark of an idea in the investing world or how to tackle on this complicated market system, then I'll feel like I've won. So I definitely want to keep this kind of platform going, this teaching platform, if you will, but I think I'm going to switch where I do it. And I'll be explaining more exactly how I'm going to break my apes portfolio down later on in this episode. 
but my plan is to eventually have a YouTube channel, and I'll still be keeping the podcast up and running because it can always work as a nice complement to the YouTube channel as well. And now the finer details of exactly how I'm going to set up my plan for this is going to be laid out at the end. Because as a listener, I feel like you at least deserve to know exactly what my plans are. Because after all, the whole reason I launched the podcast or anything in this kind of teaching platform matter for a fact was just to be transparent with what I'm doing. And I do apologize that I was not transparent with what I was doing when I took my six month break. But you live and you learn, right? So let's just move on and see how things go. Now, the next thing I wanted to talk about is just the apes portfolio in general, because this whole podcast was kind of structured to give you, the listener, a structure of how to put together a portfolio. Really, if you wanted to follow mine, I gave you the option to by being transparent with all of my picks. However, I found some difficulty in actually running a portfolio like this and looking back on it at the charts, if you really want to look at it, I timed the peak of the market because I started this portfolio apes podcast thing around November of last year. And if you zoom out on the two year or one year market, you'll see that the tip was right around December of 2021. So I started this podcast at the peak. Regardless, the whole point of this portfolio was just to show you that it's not scary to enter the market. And I probably failed. But I'd like to rest your mind assured that if you followed my portfolio and you decided to hold on, you're in the same position as I am right now. Because I haven't sold a damn thing off my TD Ameritrade account, and I don't plan to until I open up the YouTube account that I had in mind to show you guys exactly what's in that portfolio. So if you're somehow following along with my picks, just know that I've been true to my word and I haven't sold a thing. So now before I dive into the game plan I have for this apes portfolio in the future, let me dive into some personal investments and a little bit of what I've been up to this summer. Just in case you're curious. So like most of you, I've just been trying to keep cool this summer. I've just been enjoying it with friends, you know, chilling out, not doing much, going out to lakes, traveling here and there. Um, not, not doing too much, you know, because it's just summer and it's hot as hell outside. Um, but on the serious end of things, I've been searching for a house and I actually went house hunting and saw two places this weekend. Um, so that was pretty cool to kind of, you know, dive into an actual house. And I mean, I'm not putting an offer yet, but it was just kind of cool, you know, to actually go visit a house and see what it's like, uh, especially, you know, being part of this millennial group that is probably never going to own shit it's kind of nice to have dreams and then because your boy just loves learning i decided to go back to school to get my master's this fall for accountancy now i'm not sure if i've told you all the game plan or what it is but it's essentially to get this master's program and then we're going to take that cpa license and then i'm going to be a certified public accountant Then our next step after that is to see if I need to get a certain license so I can handle certain portfolios. Now, really quickly, without digging too much into it, I believe it's a CFA license you need, so I'm probably going to be getting that after I go for my CPA license. As soon as I have those two licenses under my belt, I'm pretty sure, now I'm not 100%, but I'm pretty sure I'll be able to open up my own venture investing fund and act as a sole proprietor hedge fund. Is that the ultimate goal? No. 
My ultimate goal is to be some sophisticated investor that somehow is known in this investing market, if you will. But instead of finding ways to reroute money to corporate overlords and bullshit like that, I'm quite literally going to be what Robinhood set out to be. A helping hand for the masses and one big pain ass for the upper classes. That's the goal. That is my plan. And mark it down because someday I'm going to get there and I'll be recording a podcast episode about it. But for now, it's all a dream. Call it a fugazi, if you will. So that's pretty much all I've been up to this summer, just enjoying it with friends, chilling here and there, house hunting and dreaming of owning a house, Um, going back to school this summer or this fall for one full year. And then aside from that, I've just been investing in the stock market, trying to make money while the markets are crashing. And I've been making memes just for fun. Um, And I also hope that all of you have had a wonderful summer and I hope the rest of this year finishes great for you financially and emotionally and whatever you need it to be. Now enough about my personal life because I don't even like talking about myself to be honest. I'm more a fan of talking about my ideas. So let me tell you the two stocks that I have most of my money in and why exactly I'm such a strong believer that it's good to keep my money there instead of just converting it to cash. And the first stock I want to talk about is Bed Bath & Beyond. Now the stock ticker is going to be BBBY and there's really just a speculative reason on why I'm investing in this and a trust reason if I'm being honest. So my reason for trusting this investment choice is just that Ryan Cohen bought in in March and he has a significant stake in Bed Bath & Beyond as well and he also had a significant stake in GameStop before they started a turnaround movement. So really, my trust in the stock is halfway in Ryan Cohen and then halfway in my speculation logic. Now, my speculation for this stock really is that the numbers don't make any sense. So right now what I'm going to do is I'm going to be looking at Yahoo Finance's Bed Bath & Beyond statistics for this share. So if you were to go on Yahoo Finance and put in the ticker BBBY, and then instead of looking at the company summary, you went on statistics, you would see the same kind of information I'm looking at right now. So I'll just read off two percentage numbers, and that's all the information I need to be super secure in this stock. And the two share statistics numbers that stand out to me that make zero sense, all right, is the percentage held by institutions and then the percentage of shares held by insiders. Now, keep in mind, my accounting brain is telling me the percentage that is held by insiders means that's the percentage of shares that's held by, you know, the actual board directors, anyone that's part of the chain command that works for a higher upper management in Bed Bath & Beyond, and they decided to buy shares and hold on to it. They're considered insiders. Now, the percentage held by institutions would be like your big banks, your big hedge funds. You know, they're buying the shares and they're just holding on to them. So what this is telling me is 92% of the shares of Bed Bath & Beyond plus 14% of the shares of insiders are being held. Well, this number makes no sense because it's 106%. How can 106% of the shares be held by insiders and institutions combined? And things get spicier when I let you know 
how many shares outstanding are short. Because the shares short percentage is, I'm going to round up to 27%. It's 26.96. This means that on top of that 106% that already is being held, we have short positions of 27%. So if we're going to add 27%, to 106 this means 133 percent of the float is accounted for in bed bath and beyond now if you're scratching your head and saying this makes no sense that's as far as my speculation can go on this because literally to me that makes zero fucking sense the only thing i can possibly correlate this to is when there was such a high short interest rate on gamestop that it pushed the shares outstanding number to a percentage above 100. The per actual percentage back then was 141%. So right now, we have about 130% of the Bed Bath & Beyond shares float accounted for, while only ever having 100% shares issued. So there's about a 30% wiggle room of shares that are just, who the fuck knows? And my guess is that they're all going to be bought back at some point. And honestly, in my opinion, this has a very familiar ring to a certain stock during the last quarter of 2020, which led to the infamous January 2021 phenomenon when GameStop squeezed. Now, back then, it was over 100% of the float was short. But this time, what's different with Bed Bath & Beyond is that their float isn't short, they have over 130% of the actual shares they've ever issued accounted for. And in simpler terms, Bed Bath & Beyond essentially only ever issued 69, pretty spot on number, by the way, 69 million shares outstanding. So this means the company only ever gave 69 million shares, you know, to the market to play with, buy, sell, do whatever the fuck they want. And there's 89.7 million accounted for. So you do the math there and tell me if anything makes sense. And if you actually look at the stock, it's been dropping like a rock. I mean, I remember when I first got in at this stock, it was about $23 price point. I mean, I got in after hearing about the Ryan Cohen acquisition and buy-in that he had, so of course I was a little bit, you could say, late to the party. Now, I bought up as high as $28, but since then, this stock has cratered to as low as about 4 maybe even $3 something. And what really doesn't make any sense to me is if these institutions are holding this much of the actual float, why is the stock price falling? That would mean they're selling. And it would also report then in the statistics that they no longer have the positions. But that's not true. That's not what's happening. So honestly, I'm not sure what the hell is going on. My guess is that the shares are just being lent out and it's not being reported as short interest because they're doing it through swaps. And, well, you still have the institutions looking like they're holding onto the shares. But in reality, there's just a lot of shorts and swaps being piled on to replicate a short position on the stock. That's why the stock went from $28 to $4 in about three months after the announcement that Ryan Cohen bought in. And because I believe I should put my money where my mouth is and not just tell you guys that, oh, this stock is something you should invest in, I've bought a total of 725 shares. 
Now, it's split about 525 in my individual brokerage account, and I've got about 200 or so in the Roth IRA I have, because these are just set up for retirement shares. My goal, ultimately, is to have about 1,000 shares before this rocket takes off. And ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you, Bed Bath & Beyond is going to take off. If you ever have the free time or feel like looking at the January short squeeze report, you'll see that GameStop was the number one stock on the shorts like percentage. But if you look at number two, it's Bed Bath & Beyond. And at the time, it had a 90% short interest. So this play might be speculative, but Ryan Cohen has bought call options all the way from $60 to $80. So this mofo thinks that Bed Bath & Beyond is going to be worth $60 to $80 in January of next year. Now, how do I know this? If you go on RC Ventures and look at his capital fund, which is low-key what I want to do someday in the future, is just own a fund like him. Be kind of cool. Um, but anyways, aside the point, if you look at his RC Ventures, you could see specifically which positions he has and that he's purchased Bed Bath & Beyond calls at the 60 70 and 80 dollar strike point and these calls are set to expire next year during january 20th something whatever the third um friday is of that month so that's in like seven months ladies and gentlemen ryan cohen thinks the stock is gonna go from five to seven dollars all the way up to 60 to the 80 dollar range by mid january or late january sounds like he's prepping for another squeeze so I'm just trying to line myself up financially, just like he kind of is for his own venture fund. If you want to follow along, feel free. And if you feel like you're too late to join the ship, remember, I thought I was too late at $23, and I've averaged down all the way to, I believe, about $10 a share is what my 725 uh, shares are worth. Okay, so now enough Bed Bath & Beyond talk, because the real stock I love and like and... Well, have a really hard time ever selling a single share in my life of is going to be GameStop. And if I'm being honest, that's the whole reason I even started a podcast or trying to just explain what I understand from the markets. That and from the fact that I feel like I haven't lost money because during this whole six month period where everyone's portfolio is dead blood red, I've actually maintained a pretty solid amount and I've only lost about 5 to 8%, I would say, give or take, of my whole equity. So I'm feeling pretty strong right now because inflation's 9%, so my cash holdings are actually doing worse than my investments right now. But that's beside the point because I don't want to get too far off a tangent as I normally do. And since this is going to be the last podcast where I probably give out investment advice until I open up that YouTube account... I want to give you one last reasoning into why I'm literally YOLOing more than half of my equity into GameStop. And it's the due diligence that was never proven wrong, which is why I'm still holding on. So let's start off by saying con-fucking-gratulations to the 150,000 plus computer share apes that took all of their shares out of traditional brokerage systems like Fidelity, TD Ameritrade, eToro, or whatever kind you could use, and transferred it to computer share so the shares of a stock could be placed under their name 
instead of under the brokerage's address. Because a year ago, what seemed like a stupid venture out to start DRSing is what it's called your shares. Well, now we're sitting at GameStop having about 50.8 million shares directly registered. And the reason the number is so high is because, well, GameStop just performed a 4 to 1 stock dividend split this Friday, which was yesterday for me. And that's why it seems so high. So now I'm going to be sticking to the percentages because that 50.8 million shares actually represents 16% of the float. Now you might think that's not too big, right? 16%, but it's really big because if you took all those shares, it's more shares held in that computer share system than the insiders total because the insiders of GameStop hold 15.6% of the float. So this means in total, we have about 31.6% of the float that's locked up between insiders and other regular retailers like you and me who are just sending the shares over to ComputerShare so it can be registered in their name. You can still sell the stock on ComputerShare. The only difference is most of the people that transfer the shares over don't want to. You see, the whole reason you transfer your shares to a transfer agent is because you're long on a stock. It means you want to hold it for a long time and you don't want to have your brokerage possibly lend out your share while you're just holding on to this, right? Imagine if you had 100,000 shares of a company in a Fidelity account and while you were holding them for 20 years, they were just actually giving those shares away to other brokerages to play with because they knew you would hold on. Well, if you don't like the game they might be playing, you would just take the shares out of that brokerage account. And that's exactly what's happening with ComputerShare and GameStop. Now, I'm gonna get into why this 31% of the float basically locked is such a significant amount. Because this means the free float to actually trade out there on the market is about 68.4% which is also equivalent to about 212 million shares. And because of GameStop's 4 to 1 stock split dividend they had yesterday on Friday, July 22nd, the total shares outstanding now sit at about 312 million. So now back to that 68% of the float that can be traded in the actual market. Why does it matter? Well, because the reported short interest on GameStop so this means the actual ethical short positions that are listed on the market is 20% of the float. So now if we take this 68% into account, that means 20% of that 68 has to be bought at some point in the future. You ready for some things to get a little bit spicier? If we were to look at the institutional longs, so this technically means the institutions that bought GameStop and are holding it for the long term, well, we would find out that there's about 30% of them. Now, I'm not here to vouch for them and say that they're not playing some bullshit schemes and lending your shares, but let's just assume that we're in a true market system here and that 30% long institutions don't plan on selling GameStop because they see the same stuff the apes do. Well, if that's true and we function in a perfect market, which is not true, then that would mean there's only 38% of the float available to trade. And what this means is 
there's roughly just 120 million shares in the open market to be traded, like the actual liquidity. So this means if a bank doesn't have to step up and sell its long positions, you've only got 120 million shares to work with. Why is that 120 million so significant? Because if we're going off of perfect market theory right now, the reported short interest is 20%, which is actually about 62 million shares. So that 62 million shares divided by that 120 million of the actual liquid pool shares is going to come out to about 52%. That means about half of the liquid float for GameStop is going to have to be bought up. And why does this matter? Because I did one service for you even further. I looked at the 30-day average volume for GameStop. Why is this significant? Because this is monthly data. So let's say one day you get a crazy spike in volume. At least over the course of a month, you get a better representation of what the daily trading volume is. And the daily trading volume for GameStop the last month has been just 12 million shares. Why does this matter? Because if you were to take that short interest, and let's just assume that all of the people want to close their positions at once, which isn't going to happen, but let's just play this game. That would mean that they have 62 million shares. And if we were going to take what typically is a trading volume day, that would be 62 divided by 12, and we would get roughly five days. This means it would take one full trading week for short positions to close out in GameStop if they were to go off of the average volume. Why would they want to do this? So that you don't let people know GameStop's meme stuff is real. Imagine closing out all 62 million shares in two days. The stock would run over 300% and then you would start getting more FOMO retailers to come in. You want to do this as slowly and as less painfully as possible. But I don't think that's an option anymore for them. Because you see, this 20% reported short interest number, I think is a bunch of baloney. Because if you were to look at the Fintel short interest reports, you would quickly see for GameStop, there's 60% short interest on off-exchange pools. Basically dark pools. So basically, my math on the 20% short interest that's actually reported to us retailers, oh thank you SEC for doing your job, means that I'm assuming it'll take short positions to close about 5 days. But if we're going off dark pool data, that's 3 times as much. So that means it'll take about 2 weeks to cover GameStop's fiasco. So if GameStop ever starts having a run-up, and you think you're too late to the party, just remember, the shorts closing out their own positions is probably going to take anywhere between 5 days and 15 days. And these are trading days, not weekends, not memorials, not this Friday's off because of a holiday, but actual intraday trading days. And you know, I would say I feel bad for any big hedge fund that thought GameStop was going to be going bankrupt during the COVID period because most likely they bought put positions for bankruptcy. And now that's just never going to happen. So if these short hedge funds and all these big players want to keep playing this game because they think we retail investors are stupid, well, they're going to have one coming for them. Because I myself am prepared to invest 
a solid amount into GameStop until this rocket ship takes off. And one last note is that I truly believe the short hedge funds that were in deep never really closed their positions. I honestly think they doubled down and found a way to have enough liquidity for the next year or two. And now that year or two is running out. So let's see what happens, ladies and gentlemen. But if my little percentages of how much float is being held and the whole technical analysis side isn't really floating with you, let's talk some fundamentals. More specifically, let's talk the two biggest things that have really happened in GameStop since I've last really talked to you. There's been a lot of things that have happened, but the two biggest things have been the launch of the NFT marketplace and what just happened yesterday on July 22nd, which was the stock dividend split, a four to one split. So let's start off first with the NFT marketplace because it was launched earlier this month in July and right now it's still in beta. So basically it just means it's an unfinished product but it's developed enough to start getting customer feedback on how the progress and system is working. And let me tell you right now, so far all it really is is just the marketplace to trade NFTs. So the little JPEG pictures and the little animated GIFs and sometimes better art. But as of right now, at least in the beta phase, that's all GameStop has to offer is you being able to buy and sell these NFTs. Now, another cool thing with GameStop's NFT marketplace is they built this GameStop custodial wallet. So you know how earlier on in these episodes, if you go back, I was talking about MetaMask wallet or at least creating a MetaMask wallet and then how I stored crypto in my Loopring wallet and transferred everything to a layer two system. Well, that's what GameStop's NFT marketplace is built on. You see, GameStop, they built themselves a custodial wallet. So now what people can do is you can use GameStop's custodial wallet to store your Ethereum-based crypto coins on it. Because GameStop's layer one system, at least right now so far, is just Ethereum at the base. What's cool is they also added a layer two system in Immutable X. Now, I remember talking about Immutable X and it was very early on how they got a huge grant. But what Immutable X offers the NFT marketplace is the ability to sell and buy and list these NFTs, even Mintum, for very, very low transaction fees. I'm talking buying an NFT for $5 and you're paying a transaction fee of three to five cents. It's pretty cool stuff especially if you try to go on OpenSea right now and see what your transaction fee would be if you tried the exact same thing. And I'll let you know, I myself transferred all of my crypto funds from every single mask I possibly had open, from Loopering, from my liquidity pools I had running, and I transferred it all into GameStop's uh, custodial wallet. And then what I did is I bought a bunch of NFTs just cause. I just wanted to contribute to the buying volume for the beta because now my purchases are etched on the blockchain history that I made NFT purchases for GameStop's marketplace when it first came out. And as a little fan of GameStop, it just feels cool. And I remember when I talked about how NFTs right now, there's a bad image and a bad light on them because, you know, even on GameStop's NFT marketplace, all you can really do is buy and resell these picture images for lower and higher prices. 
And let me at least warn you real quick, if you are going to buy an NFT on the marketplace, because I haven't been able to sell one. Now, that doesn't mean you'll be like unlucky like me, but I also haven't listed many NFTs. I'm just letting you know the liquidity flow, at least in certain projects, isn't really high because there's not a lot of users on this other than if you want to download the Google Chrome extension. And honestly, right now in its beta phase, it's just a little gimpy and maybe it looks like a knockoff OpenSea. But let me tell you that the potential in this GameStop marketplace, in my humble opinion, is unlimited because not anyone can just submit art. You have to apply to become a, an artist, if you will, on this marketplace. So GameStop actually reviews if you're eligible to be an artist or not. And once you're eligible to be an artist, well, you're free to upload, at least for now, your NFT artwork. But if you remember in some prior episodes, I talked about the potential of NFTs. If it wasn't just JPEGs. Like imagine if you made music, or if you made videos, or if you made some kind of serviceable NFT. Maybe if you purchase this, it acts as an access card for a certain game, you know, or who knows. Maybe the NFT is the actual video game itself. You know, there's a lot of potential. But what's really cool in my eyes is now if someone creates an NFT, like let's say you made a video game and decided to license it off as an NFT instead of going to Activision to have them, you know, produce copies and sell the IP for you, you can actually list it on GameStop's NFT marketplace yourself. Then you can choose how many quantities you want to mint. So let's say you only want to make 500 copies of your video game or whatever. And then you can set a price. Now here's the cool part. Right before you mint your NFTs, you're able to pick a royalty percentage. Now I haven't done it on GameStop's NFT marketplace, but I remember on OpenSea, I was able to just put together some stupid paint drawing and list it as an NFT. It never got sold, so poor me. But what's really cool is that this royalty percentage stays locked. So let's say you as a video game artist decide to make 500 copies of a video game and you sell a major hit on GameStop's NFT marketplace and sell out. Well, you not only would have made yourself an initial fortune from just selling at whatever price you decided your game was worth, but now every single time your, let's say, customer base of 500 finish the game and decide to sell it, right? You're going to earn whatever percentage fee you chose of that Ethereum in your wallet. Where's it going to be going? In that GameStop custodial wallet you have set up. So let me play a quick what if game with you. Let's say I made a game back in, I don't know, 2015, if that's when the game was popular, called Flappy Bird. And let's say instead of listing it on Apple's iOS, there was something called GameStop's NFT marketplace back then at the time. You know what I could do, which would be really cool? I could make this Flappy Bird game and then I could mint a thousand copies of the game itself onto GameStop's NFT marketplace as an NFT. So what would I do? Let's say I pick 10% royalty percentage so that if it ever gets resold, I get 10% of whatever the selling transaction price is. 
And then let's say I decide to make it a very cheap game and I decide to list it at whatever Ethereum is equivalent to a dollar, right? And since I have a thousand copies, I'm essentially banking on the fact that this game is going to make me a thousand dollars or at least get me a thousand dollars worth of Ethereum tokens and I'm just going to be holding on to it. Now let's say a thousand copies get sold and this game blows the fuck up, right? As it did back then. Well, there's only a thousand copies of the game. So now whoever wants to actually play the game is going to have to find someone that has a copy of this game on the GameStop NFT marketplace. They're going to have to see if it's listed at a certain price. And then the actual creator or user, whoever bought the game, gets to list the NFT at whatever price. So let's pretend that me, when I listed the NFT of this Flappy Bird game, was a price of 0.005 Ethereum, just for funds and shit's sake. Let's just make that number up. Well, what happens if the game blows up and eventually starts selling for one Ethereum, right? Which would be crazy to just think that a game like Flappy Bird could sell for what one Ethereum is right now, about $1,000. But let's say it happens, right? You, as a creator, have a potential to gain 10% on all the resales of your video game. Do you see where the potential in this lies? I hope you do, because if you don't, you're going to experience it in a slow wave, and I bet you, mainstream media is going to tell you about it when it's all too late. They're going to tell you about it when it's like Amazon at the stock price of $3,500. They're going to tell you now's the time to buy in. So I'm telling you right now, before GameStop launches its NFT marketplace, and it's still in beta right now, I'm saying it's a strong buy. And as this NFT marketplace expands and NFTs become more than just JPEGs, the actual users and artists that get to upload their artwork onto this platform are going to be in full control of their product. Think of how cool this is. An individual artist is going to have full control of the intellectual property they decide to list on a company's platform. I mean, just how cool is that? And you might be asking yourself, well, what kind of take does GameStop get in this? Because why would a company ever want to give power to the players when they could just take the money for themselves and add to their bottom line? Well, they actually make their money or revenue, if you will, from the transaction fees. And because the transaction fees are really low because it's set up on a layer two system, you might think, shoot. GameStop's only going to be making about half a percent, maybe even less for every single Ethereum sold there, let's say. And the answer is yes. And the whole purpose of doing this is so that you attract customers to onboard with you whenever they're thinking about getting into the crypto world or launching their intellectual property in the market. They're going to think of you first. And why? Because you offer the lowest transaction fees when it comes to any other competitor out there. And what this does, ladies and gentlemen, is this creates a separate revenue stream GameStop has built. And what's awesome is within their first week of the beta launch, they essentially have already made 50k in just revenue. And that's off of earning just half a percentage or 1% from those fee allocations. Pretty cool stuff if you ask me, because we are clearly in the transformation periods right now of GameStop. 
And that's all I really have for the GameStop NFT marketplace right now. But if you're any kind of creator, whether it's music, visual arts, regular art, or anything, I highly implore you to just look into NFTs, how to make one, possibly, and then see if you can apply for the GameStop NFT marketplace. But that's all I've got for that topic. So let's move on to my next talking point, which is going to be a real quick discussion on what happened when GameStop issued their 4 to 1 stock split dividend and why I think it's a huge contributor to what's going to help the stock pull another bull run, at least on the technical analysis side. So real quick, before I dive into it, let me tell you that a stock split and a stock split dividend are two very different things. Now, GameStop could have very easily said, we want a 4 to 1 stock split. They didn't on purpose. And my speculation is, like a bunch of others that are directly registering our shares for a purpose, is that there's a lot of fake shares out there in the market. And if you don't really think that's possible, well then please explain my Bed Bath & Beyond story of how insiders alone with institutions own more than 100% of the float. So now back to my point. We, as a community of apes, believe shorts never closed. Well, if this is true, this stock split dividend that was issued is going to be an absolute hammer and nail to their coffin. And if you don't believe me, look at two previous stock examples that pulled the exact same shit on their short sellers and forced them to close out. And the two stocks are yours truly, Overstock and Tesla. Yes, these two companies both issued stock split dividends. Not stock splits, but stock split dividends. Tesla's initial stock split dividend, I believe it was a 5 to 1. And don't quote me, but I think it was September of 2019. Regardless, ever since that stock split dividend, Tesla which before the stock split happened was valued at about $300. When the split happened, the stock price went from 300 to 60, and then it went from 60 to 2000, and then from 2000 they had another 4 to 1 stock split, I believe, which pushed them down to about 400 give or take from when they had that split take place, and from that 400 price they went as high as I think last year, the beginning of this year, of about eleven or $1,200. So you tell me, ladies and gentlemen, if you bought a stock when they split at $60 and it ran all the way to a price point of 5 to 10K, give or take, adjusted for the split, would you not be satisfied with those returns? Or how about even Overstock, who just last year issued a stock dividend split around the beginning of May, and two months later, their stock price went from $10 to $121. So, yes, these short squeezes are very possible when stock dividend splits are issued. And now I'm going to explain why. And most of the reasoning, or I guess you could say education I got from this, is actually reddit and it actually just so happens that i scroll reddit too much to the point where sometimes i learn a thing or two well there was a very long documented explanation on the difference between a stock split and a stock split dividend and just truly how screwed short sellers are so 
In a traditional stock split, what happens is the shares just get divided or multiplied by the number, right? So in this GameStop situation, if it did a four to one stock split, you just would have divided the price point by four and multiplied the shares by four, right? You get four shares for every one you own. That's a four to one stock split. Now, why does that matter? Because I just told you that what you would do is you would just get four shares for every one share. And nothing happens to you as a retail investor and nothing really happens to brokerages. They just hit 4x on the shares and divide by four on the price. What's so different about a stock split dividend? Well, what happens on the brokerage side? You see on the brokerage side, when a dividend is issued, it's actually the lender that gets paid the dividend. So what do I mean by this? Well, you know how there's that 20% reported short interest? Well, that means that anyone that's holding shares, let's say hypothetically, under the short position, they don't actually get paid the dividend. They actually have to pay the dividend to the lender. So when a short opens up a position, what they typically do is they go to a brokerage account that has the shares on hand, right? So let's say Fidelity has 100 shares of GameStop, and I'm being very, very basic here, but let's say they have 100 shares of GameStop only and that are marked long, right? That they said, these are long, no one touches them. Well, what a short seller can do is say, do you mind if I borrow those shares and sell them, and then I'll buy them back at some point in the future and give them back to you? And we can negotiate interest rates, percentages, blah, blah, blah. So they do this stuff. Now, if the short seller is holding on to that short position while a dividend is declared, then the short player actually has to pay the lender um, the money for that dividend, right? So what did GameStop do when they issued a stock dividend split is they really said, I don't want you to just multiply the shares by four and divide the price by four. I want you to buy three shares for every one share you have from us and then distribute them to your customers. And now that I said that, let me take a couple steps back. What do I mean by this? Because originally before the four to one stock split dividend, GameStop had 79, I'm just going to say 79 million shares outstanding. Okay. What's going to happen in a four to one stock split dividend, GameStop is actually going to provide three shares from their actual company pool of shares they can create and give out to the market. They're going to create three new shares, okay, for every one that exists out there in the market. And then they're going to give all of those created shares. So if there's 79 million shares in the market, and we do 79 times 3 because that's how many shares were created. We're going to get about 237 million shares. So what GameStop did is they created 237 million shares. And they got these rights from the shareholder voting meeting. But they were able to create these shares. And what they did is they gave them out. Okay, They gave out the shares to all the participating brokers that are playing this game 
and they said distribute these dividends okay because these shares are now considered dividends to your customers so as a retail investor not much really changed you would have woken up yesterday morning and you would have seen your share count multiplied by four and the price divided by four from the broker side if you didn't lend any shares absolutely nothing happened gamestop gave you three shares for every single one you held in your system let's say and then all you had to do is give those three shares gamestop gave you each right to your customers and now the real million dollar question is what happens if you have a short position open during this stock dividend well let's go back to my very basic fidelity example and see if i can break it down myself so let's say fidelity decides to lend a hundred shares to me right let's say i decide to short gamestop or just any position for the matter of fact and i get a hundred shares worth right to short and i can do whatever i want i can hit i can sell a hundred shares and hope that the price goes down and then buy the shares later on and then give them back to fidelity when they ask okay so in a stock split dividend fidelity would have been given those three shares right because they lent me a hundred but they're marked long on their books and fidelity was given the three shares for every one which was a hundred so fidelity is given 300 shares in this situation right because of their marked long positions in gamestop but what gamestop management or maybe the stock company for gamestop which is computer share the company what they probably don't know is that fidelity lent me the shares right and i can do whatever i want with them well what i have to do now because of this stock split dividend since I have a short position open, is I have to match three shares for every one I have, right? Because I made an obligation to Fidelity that I was gonna return back my 100 shares of GameStop to them. But while I was holding on to those or sold them and planning on buying in the future, a stock split occurred but the shares were delivered to the brokerage so right now what's happening in fidelity system is they have 300 shares that are brand new minted shares let's say and there's a hundred shares they gave away and i have to go out there when i return my hundred shares to fidelity when they ask hey can we get our shares back it's actually going to be 400 now even though it's technically the price reduction what happens if the price of GameStop happens to go back to a critical margin point? Like, let's say, the original price before the stock split, which was $150. So if the regular price of GameStop ever were to reach $150 after this 4 to 1 split they had, that means all GameStop investors have they held got three extra shares of free money because of this now i'm just trying to put some light and perspective on this because stock split dividends they're a little bit untraditional and this situation we're in really with gamestop is very untraditional but in my humble and honest opinion now i'm not some 
accoladed professional teacher. I just have a bachelor's degree in accounting and I'm going for a master's and I'm trying to understand markets and it's almost like the more you dig, the more you want to yell fraud. But if you're a true professional, you should look around that and try and find logic, right? So that's what I'm trying to do here. I'm trying to find logic for you guys. And right now, the logical reasoning is that short sellers are absolutely fucked when these brokerages ask for those shares back, right? Because right now, it doesn't make a difference because the price is right around the same point. But if there's another bull run, let's say, and the price of GameStop goes to $50 or $70, all you ever have to do is multiply the price by 4 to see what the original price would have been. Because now GameStop's new all-time high price point because of this stock split is shown as $102. So $102 for GameStop does not sound like it costs a lot, even though fundamentally nothing ever changed with the stock. What has changed is that now when the short sellers have to re-buy their shares on the open market, they now have to buy four times as much than they originally would have had to because they didn't close out their positions. And the one due diligence that I will hang my life on is that short sellers never closed their positions in January of 2021 because they thought they would have the Federal Reserve in their back pocket, the regular government ready to hide the crimes for them, and the SEC willing to not give a shit for so long. But what do you think will happen when millions of retail investors get together for one cause, and that's to get financial freedom from a bunch of greedy pigs? Well, in my honest opinion, we're about to find out. And I've been waiting a year and a half, and I intend on waiting even longer if I have to. Because what started as one share in January for me is now 353 shares post-split of GameStop, and I intend on buying more. Alright, so I know I talked a lot about Bed Bath & Beyond and GameStop, but I just wanted to let you know a little bit more insight into my mindset and my philosophy is on why I'm investing in these two companies. I mean, I have two-thirds of my um, equity in investments. I have more than half of it is in GameStop and about, you know, some spare change there for Bed Bath & Beyond. Now, I'm going to be talking about the last position I have in my portfolio, which is just cash. So, my portfolio right now is heavily consistent of just GameStop. Uh, Bed Bath and Beyond, and then maybe just a thousand or two thousand dollars worth of options and different other stocks combined together. The rest of my money is in cash because, like I said, I'm saving for a house. That's really the only reason I have a third of my equity in cash. Because if not, I would find out what my monthly payments are for expenses, multiply it by two, have that much in my checking account, and put the rest of it in these two companies like i've said but because a down payment in california is really fucking expensive pretty much the price of a house i need to save up for it 
so that's what I'm doing with my third position of cash. Now what really sucks about holding on to this cash is that inflation is eating at it. Uh, don't know if you know, but inflation's last report for July's month-to-month -month yearly data was 9.1%. So basically what that means is $100 that you earned July of last year is now worth $91.91. So congrats, Federal Reserve, you fucked that one up again. And the government's just going to tell you nothing, and the media is going to say it's Putin's fault. But in all reality, if you print 80% of the money ever put into circulation since uh, 2020, I don't know what you could possibly expect as the Federal Reserve except for high inflation. So that's the only really thing that sucks about holding on to cash is that I'd much rather be putting it in um, stocks that I feel like are a lot more safe, where maybe I lose 10% in a year, but the potential to gain is there. Because if inflation's already basically 10%, you're already getting fucked. I mean, it sucks to suck, but where would you put your money, you know? If the number in your checking account is going to be worth less 10% a year from now, you know, what's, what's a safe asset? Is it safe to put it in the stock market that might lose 50%? Or is it safe to put it in the crypto market, which right now technically, apparently we're enduring a, a crypto winner, whatever the fuck that means. And um, then you've got NFTs and, you know, you've got houses crashing. You've got regular cars not being listed at high prices. I don't know what to tell you. You know, there's no safe assets now aside from cash. So the best way I would say to measure your economic growth right now, right, is to compare the opportunity cost, right? If, if you're holding on to a lot of cash and you want to play with markets, Think about it, right? Because even though inflation's pretty bad right now, which let's just say five to ten percent, even though it's probably going to stay at ten percent for a minute, um, is it better to put it in the market and lose twenty percent in two months? Because that's how volatile this shit is right now. So I think honestly, right now, if you're not sure what to do, I would say keep your money hundred percent in cash because that's what I'm doing. Um, I mean, that's not what I'm doing. I've built up a portfolio by just ha throwing in half my paychecks into um, these two stocks that I like. But even right now, like the last two, three months, all I've done is save my paychecks. I'm not, I mean, aside from paying my expenses, I'm not putting it in the investing markets. Um, to If I want to buy stocks of certain things, I look at what I can sell. That's not GameStop or Bed Bath & Beyond, you know, and I've kind of ran out of options now. I literally have nothing else to sell. Um, so yeah, right now it's just hoard on cash, you know, cash is king, ladies and gentlemen, the mainstream media won't want to tell you we're in a possible recession pathway heading to a possible depression, but you know, the federal reserve, the sec, your government, truly your administration has failed you yet again as the people, you know, and it's unfortunate that you're going to be left holding the bag because you're going to pay it all back through tax dollars. And there's there's going to be another bailout at some point, you know, because this money, it just you can't print 80 percent of the money that's ever been in circulation in the last three years and expect it not to have any repercussions. So 
unless the future holds extreme printing, you know, then we're going to be stuck here for a minute. And that's called stagflation. So, you know, there's not really much you can invest in or do other than, you know, try and find something that matters more, I guess. But from the schooling I've done, I can see it, you know, like, it's almost like, um, like if uh, a captain saw that they're going to fucking crash into the city and you just have to calm your people saying, no, we, we can slow down, but your engine's fucked. How do you tell the people that your engine's fucked when you're going 50 watts or whatever knots towards the boardwalk and everyone's supposed to chill? Yeah, so it's tough being captain of the ship, you know, but Jerome Powell, man, the Fed really dropped the ball on this one. That's all I got to say. Yeah, I hope I didn't turn too dark here. At the very end, I just want to, you know, at least express the seriousness that I personally feel. Um, I hope I'm wrong. I really hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm just being paranoid and all of this shit isn't actually real. That, you know, it won't happen and maybe uh, Jerome Powell was right to print all that fucking money. But, um, you know, I'm just trying to be real here, um, transparent in how I'm feeling. And honestly, I think if I were you in this situation and you're not sure what to do with your money, you know, uh, just save it. Save it. Wait for mainstream media to start saying the R word, the recession word. And, um, you know, if they start, honestly, if they start using the recession word, if the media starts saying that, I might start getting back into buying stocks, you know. But slowly, on my moving average principle, if you remember how I said, um, you know, you don't put in, like, imagine if you had a million dollars, you wouldn't put all a million uh, you wouldn't put all a million in on day one. So do that. As soon as mainstream media says recession, um, pick stocks that you like, that you think will hold value in the next five to 10 years, and slowly start building positions in them. Because as soon as the media is saying recession, I think most of the worst shit has hit the fan. Um, but they're not going to tell you in the middle of it because that's just what they do best. So that's my two cents on it all. That's also my portfolio, my like real personal portfolio. Two thirds of it is investments. One third of it is cash. And I'm now working to kind of make it more of a 50-50 split. So I'm not putting any more cash in my investment portfolio. But now um, let me quickly move on to what my structure of this, I guess you could call it Apes portfolio or Apes platform is. Um, because I know my full intent when I started this podcast was to do what I'm doing now, um, try and be transparent and try and teach something about markets in each episode, whether it's accounting knowledge, um, business knowledge, or something I know maybe about options or just regular market structure and try and teach it. Um, the thing is, you know, I quickly realized that if you just YOLO into something like this, and you're unprepared, you can run out of content pretty quickly. And that's really what happened. And I felt like, uh, you know, I got a bit, I'm not going to say overworked, but you know, I felt like I was fried, if you will. Um, always trying to find something to talk about. 
And instead of doing that, I figured what's a better way to do this because you know I didn't feel like I was also putting out the best content. So I had some time to think and I've come with a solution. Unfortunately, solution number one requires me to move out. So you see, I still live at home and I have no shame in that, but I've quickly realized how trying to do what I'm doing, have a little podcast, just anything, like content creation stuff, like it's a little hard to do when you're at home with family. Um, I have to pick certain times to try and record, you know, and it's just becomes an inconvenience sometimes. So I just figure rather than do with all these little inconveniences and minor stuff, let's move out. Let's have like dedicate a room, you know, specifically for this um, podcasting, YouTubing, everything. And um, that way I can do it any time of the day when I want to. No, no um, distractions or whatever, you know, reasons to not do something. Um, that said, you know, living with family is great because in times like this, when things might get worse or it's not looking too gloom, um, you can save, you know, and I'm fortunate for that. Um, back to this apes like structure for the portfolio. It's to move out first. It's to build an office for this specifically. And then I'm going to be having a YouTube account. I'm going to specifically create a Twitter for this apes portfolio. And then I'm going to keep this podcast. So right now, this will be the last episode where I kind of talk to you about stock analysis, at least this in depth. Um, because my plan, at least with this podcast, I'm going to keep the podcasting going randomly, as you'll see, um, before I move out. So there will still be some content here and there. It'll be different, though. You, um, For the podcast, I've decided that I want to kind of keep it as a storytelling narrative like form of content, if you will. I'll give you two prime examples, actually. What I'm working on right now is I'm looking at how certain big stock market crashes have happened and what I would like to do is on the next episode so you're getting a little preview is talk about all the stock market crashes that have happened and kind of talk about you know the five years before the crash the crash five years after kind of give you guys a little timeline of you know the swing the momentum the feel for it that way maybe after all the crashes and little stories you hear about them you can kind of equate it to the present day and see if Hey, is this happening again? Um, so yeah, the podcast I really am going to change. And the way it's going to be structured now is it's more of a narrative storytelling um, content creation where, you know, if I have market stories to tell, if I find something neat, um, kind of how my third segment was really, it's just that. So that's what the podcast is really going to be turning to. No longer will it be investing in gambling segment. It'll kind of be the teaching moments. Um, and then occasionally, once this is thinking too far in the future, of course, but uh, I'll let you know still because it's on the podcast. Once I have the YouTube account set up and everything, if something ever happens, you know, um, big on the on that account, then I could always do a quick recap, you know, on this podcast for for listeners. Uh but that way, it just keeps the pods a lot less timely, because even this one right now, as I'm looking, it's an hour, and who knows if it should be, because I'm talking too much, but the point is, 
I've thought about the structure of how I want to try and, you know, get my voice out there and try and see if I can be a fund manager for free and then make a career out of it somehow. I'm just trying to see if I can maybe, you know, provide a voice along the journey. And uh, you guys can see how it's formed, I guess. But so that's the goal right now is just podcast storytelling. The YouTube is going to take over place for the investing and gambling segments. So my plan is to open up a YouTube account. And then essentially how I was trying to explain stuff here in the investing segment and how I was creating bet slips and, you know, making picks Instead of doing that in a podcast medium, I've decided it's better to do it visually because it could be a lot quicker. I can show you guys what I'm doing. And that way you could also see more in-depth analysis. Um, but, you know, that's just the goal is to open up the YouTube account so I could have different kinds of channels. I mean, the only I've only thought of three channels so far and it's probably just going to be stuck at that. But I'm going to be having the investing segment as one channel, the sports betting segment as another channel. And then because I would be moving into a new house and I am working on, um, or I would be working on fixing it up, I figure what better way than having a DIY slash outdoor um, work experience channel, you know? So that way I ever do any little projects, I can DIY it, show it, you guys can learn from it. Uh, the biggest takeaway, oh yeah, and then Twitter, real quick. So so for my Twitter, um, I, uh, when I open the YouTube account, I will create a specific Twitter so that it's not my personal one, because my personal one, I realize I don't want to like post stuff all the time. So I'll make a specific one for this account. It'll be the Apes Portfolio Twitter handle or whatever, and I'll make sure it's linked. So, But, you know, this is this is very forward-looking. Uh, gotta get the house first but what I will say is the biggest takeaway from all of this is <clears throat> I'm always gonna work to making it free so I'm gonna find a way I don't know how YouTube works but you know I'll make sure I never implement ads never make any money off this that's what I mean by free my my whole intent on this is to never make any money at least in terms of the teaching side of it because I believe in myself so much that I'll make money from the profession that I choose and from the investments that I make so let's just try and teach for free you know why not so that's the structure of the podcast um, I'll do a quick recap if it made zero sense because I talk too much sometimes but essentially I'm gonna plan on moving out which give or take I'm thinking is gonna be a year I'm hoping by the end of this year I find a place because I've already looked for places and houses. But, you know, I'm not trying to time the housing market or wait for a crash anymore. If I find a place I like, I'm going to get it. Um, so once I find my place and move out, that will be day zero of this apes planning. Because until that day happens, I'm going to make sure I put together... A right structure for the YouTube account so everything flows correctly I'm gonna make sure to be more prepared let's just call it that right this was a good phase zero trial uh, 25 episodes on a podcast just straight up YOLO-ing it into there 
And, you know, I feel like personally, I've learned um, a lot, not just about myself, but about the markets, because I forced myself to try and explain it. So I really like that point. So that is why we're going to be diving as soon as I move out. That is why we're going to be creating a YouTube account to show you just my thought process and maybe to help you if it does in any way, shape or form. Um, And we're going to keep this podcast up and running because just whenever I want to share like a story about market crashes or if there's maybe I read about a really good um, business story and I just want to share it, you know, that's what the pod will be more engineered to do. And when the YouTube account's set up, maybe I'll do quick recaps every now and then of big news events. And then we'll have a Twitter account that we create where it's literally the Twitter account will just be to post positions like stock positions and stock alerts. So if I were ever on, you know, to give you, hey, buy this. And then later on in the day, I didn't want to make a quick uh, YouTube video. I could just post on Twitter, let's say. So I'm just trying to give you a little bit um, of a look here in the future, I guess, if you're going to stick with me. Uh, if not, I completely understand, you know, this is this is completely untraditional uh, podcasting to just have someone start and then tell you they're going to do this and be transparent and then stop and then come back and then stop. Um, so I understand, you know, if you're like, yo, this guy just is all talk. Um, I don't take it personally at all um, because I will figure out how to do all of this. But what I'll let you know right now is... I will always make sure that I don't earn a damn penny off of this stuff because that could change my motive. Um, I mean, we've seen it happen, ladies and gentlemen, with mainstream media. They just lie through their teeth now because they go to the highest bidder or the highest story or the hottest story. So let's just see if we can transform the world one brick at a time, brick by brick. And that's all I got to say for uh, this episode. So everyone take care. Uh, I hope my predictions, at least for the recession, are wrong, but everything else is correct. And I hope everyone has a good rest of their year. And I wish nothing but the best for you all. Uh, Best of successes. And if you're struggling right now, just know that you're not alone and that you're going to make it out and that you're going to be better on the other side of it. So if you tuned into this episode and you listened throughout the whole thing and you listened to kind of what my future plans are and current ones, um, I want to say thank you, love you, wish you nothing but the best moving forward. Until next time, ape out.
power to the players, motherfucker. There's some serious shit brewing on right now in the GameStop NFT marketplace. Just check out Blockbuster, and would you look at that? Toys R Us is making it back to all Macy's in stores. Apes, we're back.